Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Slowing the pace of climate change will require two simultaneous efforts on a global scale. The first of these efforts is well known and involves shifting away from today's fossil fuel dependent energy system and toward a future where nearly everything will run on electricity produced by zero carbon resources. The second part of the effort to combat climate change has, until recently, attracted relatively less attention. Carbon dioxide removal is the process of removing carbon dioxide from Earth's atmosphere. CDR, for short, can be used to offset some of today's CO2 emissions and might someday even be able to turn back the clock by lowering the concentration of atmospheric carbon to levels that existed on an earlier, less hot Earth. CDR will be a key part of any plan to reach net zero carbon emissions by the middle of this century, as the United States, the European Union, and a growing number of countries have proposed to do. But what exactly is CDR? The answer is complex, as it's a term that encompasses everything from cutting-edge technologies to the most fundamental of nature-based processes. What is clear is the fact that implementing CDR at meaningful scale will be a complex industrial-sized undertaking that is already raising weighty political, economic, and even moral questions. On today's podcast, we'll be taking a look at CDR with the help of a group of researchers who are behind the new CDR Primer, which is an online resource that covers many of the questions around CDR, from technologies to land use to economic and equity issues. Each of today's five guests will offer highlights and takeaways from one chapter of the primer. So without further ado, let's go around for some introductions. Tolly Rinberg, let's start with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Tolly Rinberg. Uh, I'm a PhD student at Harvard University. I'm working on a new principle for direct air capture that actually makes use of desalination technologies. But I also spend um, a lot of my time working on governance of carbon dioxide removal. Um, and so Andrew Bergman and I co-authored chapter one, uh, which sort of lays out the case for CDR, uh, bringing sort of the science to the social justice framework. Uh, I'm Erica Belmont. I'm an associate professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Wyoming. My expertise is in thermochemical conversion, so particularly of solid feedstocks like biomass. And my work includes pyrolysis, gasification, and combustion for the utilization of these feedstocks to generate energy and other useful products. And today I'll be talking about chapter two specifically of the primer, which really covers the building blocks of CDR systems. And these are the various CDR approaches that have been developed or under development. And then specifically, I'll be talking about biomass-based pathways to uh, CDR, including biochar and bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration, so uh, which is commonly called by its acronym FECS. I'm Jeremy Freeman. I'm the executive director of Carbon Plan. We're an organization focused on scientific integrity and transparency of climate solutions. And we've done a lot of work uh, analyzing a wide range of carbon removal opportunities. Um, our team, uh, Carbon Plan, was involved in writing and editing the primer. Um, and we also helped produce the primer as a digital open source online book, which is something we were really excited to be involved in. Um, today, I'll be focused on chapter two on the building blocks and also chapter three on mapping CDR opportunities. Hi, uh, I'm Noah McQueen, and I'm a PhD student in chemical engineering here at the University of Pennsylvania. My specific expertise is in direct air capture, as well as carbon mineralization approaches to carbon dioxide removal. 
Today, I'll be talking a bit about direct air capture as a carbon removal approach, as well as about life cycle analysis and how it's important in determining both the impact and net negativity of potential carbon dioxide removal systems. Yeah, and hi, I'm Pete Saris. I'm a research professor at Penn uh, with a background in carbon capture, removal, and utilization. I also have done some work on life cycle analyses and the techno-economics of these technologies. And uh, so I, I co-authored chapters four and five. I'll be speaking specifically on chapter five, the role of utilization in carbon dioxide removal. Great, great. Thanks, guys. So before we jump into the chapters themselves, let's do a little bit of, a, of an intro and a background on the primer. Um, first off, Tolly, what is the need the CDR primer is intended to fill? Yeah, so if, if I can just set the stage, um, you know, in the last few years, more than 100 countries have announced uh, that they'll aim for what's called a net zero emission target by mid-century. Net zero uh, is an average. And what it really means is that uh, countries are relying on the fact that they can account for all the emissions they do not eliminate by removing a proportional amount of CO2 directly from the atmosphere, so enough to compensate for any remaining emissions. The reason this conversation is important is that, you know, although some amount of CDR is unavoidable, uh, especially to offset what's called hard to avoid emissions, there are also huge political and financial incentives to overstate the importance of CDR. Um, and so gesturing at future scenarios that rely on large amounts of CDR is politically appealing because it avoids the sort of the societal burden of rapid and deep uh, decarbonization that we urgently need today. Um, and so in a real way, focusing on CDR, CDR really does decrease the chances of averting catastrophic climate change. And we should be really clear who benefits from overstating the role of CDR. Uh, that's the fossil fuel industry, for-profit interests of fossil fuel executives and bankers are working to sow confusion on this very point today. And we should also be very clear who stands to lose. And that's the poorest and most vulnerable populations on this planet, and especially in the global South. Um, so unfortunately, um, the, the community of scientists and engineers working on CDR has also fed into this narrative uh, by citing overstated CDR quantities as a reason to sort of support uh, and fund CDR research. Um, so it's with this backdrop that our primer aims to cut through the hype. I don't know, maybe you, maybe you hang out on Twitter um, and, and give folks, you know, especially people who are just learning about the field for the first time, uh, the right tools and language and framing to understand all these tricky and important concepts without throwing away paths that are too costly today um, and by, by laying out a real social justice-based approach. Pete, there's quite a, a backstory to the primer. And my understanding is that it began as a student project and, and pretty much grew from there. How'd this all get off the ground? Well, it... Uh... It all started in Calabria, Italy. Um, this is actually one of our uh, former research associates in uh, uh, the Professor Wilcox group, Simona Liguari, brilliant experimentalist now with Clarkson University. So she hailed from Calabria, kind of got us excited about the idea. And so that was sort of our first workshop. And it was really just a group of experts discussing the state of carbon dioxide removal. You know, this was a few years back uh, we were coming off a huge wave of CCS, uh, kind of the mid-teens. Uh, we're starting to talk about things like utilization, but CDR particularly 
you know, this predated even the first commercial direct air capture plant. So CDR was really new. What emerged from that meeting, I think outside of us all wanting to retire and collaborate, of course, uh, <laughs> or, or that despite our common goals that were apparent, there was really no common language. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that this was such a nascent field, but also because it's just a, a variety of approaches, um, and, and which kind of lends to a lot of voices needed. Um, and so there's some recognition there uh, to form kind of a close-knit community around CDR, and we kind of rallied around that a bit. We also realized that there could be an opportunity here to provide something to the greater community as well. So we followed that on with two more workshops, one in Edinburgh and one in Worcester, Mass. And uh, the primer kind of slowly took form. Uh, it's, it was a student-led project, and, uh, and we wanted it that way uh, because, you know, this, was, this is a primer. It's for this new generation. You know, we're all hands on deck, and we need as much help as we can get. Uh, but I think having students lead this effort made it a little bit more digestible, uh, friendlier, easier on the eyes, so to speak. But experts were right there contributing, uh, guiding, mentoring, and it's sort of our collective conscious was born. And, uh, you know, uh, kudos to Jennifer Wilcox for, you know, really spearheading uh, and organizing, but also to Ben Kolosh, who's a research associate here at Penn, um, uh, and of course, Jeremy Friedman with Carbon Plan, who really helped steer this thing into form. And Jennifer Wilcox is a professor here at the University of Pennsylvania Climate Center, who, as you mentioned, uh, kind of spearheaded this all with you. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of her, her brainchild, and uh, uh, and we were all happy to be a part of it. She has a great way of rallying the troops, and uh, we were, we were you know, uh, collecting the minds uh, around the world on this topic, and, you know, again, with the, the variety of approaches, pull us all together. Uh, that's really kind of what the primer is all about. I mean, it sounds to me like it's really kind of a, a state of the art on various aspects of CDR, kind of is, is a guide for people to, to, to go forward as well, right? What are the current levels of understanding, the development of the technologies, so everybody's on the same page so we know where we go from, from here? Is that, is that a, a way to look at it? Yeah, I think we tried to strike the balance between, you know, making it amenable to public consumption, not being too te technical, but also, you know, so educating in that sense and educating a, a wide variety of audience from policymakers to, to early academics alike, uh, but also bringing to light a lot of the topics that Tolly just mentioned, you know, uh, or particularly a lot of the, you know, of the, uh, the, the scale, the projections, and a lot of the, you know, EJ issues that are kind of, at least in a lot of people's blind spots. EJ being environmental justice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, as Tolly said uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, um, I just want to reference this. I, I read the, 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 the preface to the primer and it caught my attention. Um, and I'd expected a discussion on technology, but really, it was much broader than that, and it emphasizes that CDR is multidisciplinary. Pete, why is this the case? Well, I mean, it, it, we have to got to do so much in in such a short time span. Honestly, it, it's this is an all hands on deck problem. You know, this is. I think I think you need, uh, you know, the subject matter experts. It. From, from from soils, from understanding what's going on in that first meter depth to the second, you know, to, to the uh, effects on uh, the ecosystems and oceans, right? To understanding mineralogy, 
Uh, we need engineers who understand how to scale. Uh, we need life cycle thinkers who understand how to assess the actual impact uh, uh, on climate, right? Uh, we need cost modelers to help to develop, you know, low, low cost and how we can make these things, uh, you know, uh, economically viable. But we also need, you know, as Toby mentioned, that EJ community, uh, you know, to ensure that we're thinking about how this impacts people on the ground. You know, it's, and we'll, we'll get into it in a bit, but carbon dioxide removal, you know, not CCS. This is not carbon capture and storage where, it's, you know, there's really, even though it's a variety of solutions there, they really kind of all fall under the same umbrella, right? This is such, and we, we even, you know, we'll, we'll term them broadly as natural-based versus engineered, but even that, that's like calling the, you know, the, the industrial sector, the industrial sector. It does no justice the amount of diversity in there. Um, but all, all the same, these are all grounded by the same objective. We want to lower atmospheric stock of CO2, and we want to do so for a long period of time. So let's move on to the first chapter. And that first chapter is titled The Case for Carbon Dioxide Removal from Science to Justice. Uh, and it starts out describing the, the challenge of addressing climate change. How does carbon dioxide removal totally, how does it fit into the larger response to climate change? So it's good to start with the basics here. Um, you know, the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere uh, as a result of fossil fuel combustion and land use changes is the main driver of the climate crisis. And CO2 is a very long-lived gas. <clears throat> it stays in the atmosphere for thousands of years. Um, and it also mixes throughout our atmosphere uh, quickly. So speaking strictly in terms of climate impacts, uh, if we reduce a unit of CO2 emissions today, that's equivalent to removing the same amount of CO2 from the atmosphere today. And so that sets up a trade-off. If we, if we set a temperature target um, then the less CO2 emissions we reduce, the more CDR we will have to do. But these options are actually not interchangeable, as that uh, simple trade-off uh, may suggest. Um, to make this really concrete, you know, if we, for some reason, decide to use CDR to compensate for the CO2 that we emit from burning fossil fuels, um, then we're also allowing lead and particulate matter from those fossil fuels to continue to harm and, and kill people in frontline communities. And that isn't being tracked when we just consider the CO2 balance. Um, so the societal, political, and economic outcomes will be very different depending on what emissions we decide to reduce versus how much we decide to remove. Um, and I'll just emphasize that sort of the least expensive option, if you just narrow things down to dollar per ton, uh, is not necessarily the best if you if you uh, take a broader perspective that con considers environmental justice and and social justice problems. Let's take a moment to clarify something here. What specifically does or does not qualify as carbon dioxide removal? Yeah, so there there are a lot of um, uh, there are a lot of concepts swirling um, swirling around here um, and. Uh, it's, it's challenging because um, actually in some cases, um, the difference between carbon dioxide removal and avoiding emissions is, uh, is more um, important to think, is, is more accurate to think about on a, on a spectrum. Um, some, some processes are definitively carbon dioxide removal. Others really depend on um, 
on the the management and the and the way in which like the system is uh, is is structured. Um, and I'll just I'll emphasize that sort of one challenge when labeling a process um, a CDR system, and this is particularly challenging in biological systems, like soil sequestration and reforestation is that even though you can try to model the future, you may not know if a process removes more CO2 than it emits until years into the project. Um, and there may be societal physical forces that you're not um, accounting for. So uh, tools like life cycle analysis help with this. And uh, Noah will elaborate more um, when he covers chapter four um, later on. Uh, but I, but you know what, what you should really uh, consider is what's important for understanding these distinctions is where the CO2 is coming from and where it's going. Um, in terms of the input stream of CO2, you know, to take one example, if you if you have CO2 that comes, uh, say, from a natural gas power plant, you capture that CO2 and then you uh, bake it into cement, let's say, then you're storing that CO2 for a very long time. But what you're doing there is just avoiding emissions. You're preventing that CO2 that left that natural gas power plant from entering the atmosphere. That CO2, you, you have to take CO2 from the atmosphere and put it into the cement in order for it to count as removal. Um, and, you know, what's important here is that these, are tr these might seem like simple concepts, but uh, companies applying for CDR funding and companies funding CDR have created real confusion on this uh, seemingly simple point. And that's... Uh, that's uh, what part of what the primer attempts to um, address. Um, if I could also just say, I think another important concept that uh, that's worth that's worth discussing is uh, the idea of where the CO two ends up and how and how it's stored. Uh, so this is where, where the term permanence comes in, or how long carbon is kept outside of the atmosphere. Um, permanence helps us evaluate how a field of soil should be governed which needs to be continuously managed versus a direct air capture process, uh, which if done properly can basically store carbon effectively um, uh, indefinitely. So you can see how this gets very tricky very quickly. Um, you know, a field of soil might technically be net negative for the first five years, uh, but then if management practices change, that carbon that has absorbed into the soil could fly right back up into the atmosphere, um, and then the whole process has been net zero, uh, or maybe even a source of emissions. And um, that's not to say that we shouldn't uh, pursue these so soil options or other options, but it just we have to be really uh, cognizant of the limitations. Um, and you know this affects regulations today. There, there are currently government-backed carbon offset soil protocols in California that are really not taking these permanent realities into account. So it's interesting. So it's not just about taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The key issue here is what happens to that carbon dioxide after that point. Is it stored permanently or is it in some form that in the foreseeable future or much further down the road, it could be re-released into the atmosphere? And I think we're going to get more into that. But that's, that sounds like that's a key, key issue here. Exactly. Yeah, now, one other uh key point I wanted to bring up that you that you talk about in this first chapter is that CDR is going to have to be implemented on an absolutely huge scale to significantly reduce the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Can you put this scale into perspective? Yeah, this is, this is such an important question. Um, and it's a point that a lot of folks um, are talking about 
um, you know, actually in a wrong way and, and frankly in a dangerous way that the, the primer helps clarify. So uh, how are people currently talking about a scale of CDR? Well, essentially conversations revolve around what's called integrated assessment models, uh, which use economic, ecological, technological assumptions to model global emissions um, trajectories. And these scenarios are typically compared on the basis of cost. Again, uh, that's something like dollar per ton of CO2. Um, for example, scenarios uh, keeping warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius typically have included CDR deployment between 5 and 15 billion tons of CO2 per year around uh, the year 2050. And th there are some highly cited CDR studies, uh, such as the National Academies of Sciences Negative Emission Technologies Report, um, which has a lot of fantastic resources. Um, that report calls for a massive 20 billion tons of removal per year by the end of the century. Um, you know, actually, I, ha I have a, their quote. They actually frame this as a conclusion in the report that, quote, if the goal for climate and economic growth are to be achieved, negative emission technologies will likely need to play a role in mitigating climate change by removing 10 gigatons per year CO2 globally by mid-century and 20 gigatons per year globally by the century's end. So for reference, we're currently emitting about 40 billion tons of CO2 per year. So 40 that, billion a year. That's right. So that 20 billion per year would mean we're sucking up 50% of current emissions. Um, these are massive numbers. Um, let me just, let me stop there for a yeah. moment. That's, that is massive. So of all the emissions, of all the automobiles, power plants, airplanes, whatever it may be, we're going to, we're talking about sucking half of that every year, you know, half of the yearly emissions back every year, is that, if I understand. That's correct, yes. And that's what these reports are claiming. But I want to emphasize uh, that in a lot of cases, what these reports are doing is framing this removal as necessary and required, and that that, that language is actually not appropriate. Um, uh, what, what I mean by that is that by construction, these integrated assessment models are actually, um, they're not evaluating what is required. They're, they're evaluating a cost. They're making a cost analysis about, essentially they're making a cost analysis about picking the cheapest dollar per ton option given certain constraints. That's not asking what is truly or almost you know, unavoidable or very hard to avoid emissions that will be left, or which, where we will need CDR to compensate for that. And so calling these IM results necessary amounts of CDR um, unreasonably justifies uh, potentially excessive and uh, morally hazardous, really, amount of CDR. Um, so what Section 1.4, uh, what we present there, is an alternative bottom-up approach about how to think about this. Uh, so we ask, you know, if the goal is to stop warming this century, how much CDR is truly required? CDR is only required to offset hard to avoid emissions, which we define as uh, unacceptable to avoid from a social justice perspective. So, you know, like feeding humans or uh, extremely physically difficult to eliminate within some, some time frame. Uh, and we didn't ask about cost in this analysis at all. And we assumed we can decarbonize the entire electric, electricity and industrial sectors. 
uh, which is extremely hard challenge. But even with these assumptions, we, we looked sector by sector and we said, what are these really hard to avoid emissions? What will they be? And we found that most would come from agriculture and aviation and taken together, uh, the hard to avoid emissions would need uh, between 1.5 and 3.1 billion tons of CO2 of CDR to offset them. So to be clear, these are still very large numbers, uh, 1.5 to 3.1, but they're also a lot smaller than what these integrated assessment models claim between 10 to 20. Um, and, you know, just as a reference, one, one, uh, um, 1 billion tons of CO2 removal per year, if you run a direct air capture facility, will uh, require approximately uh, 10% of current global electricity production. And, um, you know, uh, or you could, you could grow a forest the size of, of Texas. Um, so, so, so these numbers are still massive, but we should really understand what we're doing when we're, when we're pointing at these uh, uh, e extremely uh, uh, large 10 to 20 billion tons per year numbers and, and the moral hazard associated with that. So the needs are smaller, but the needs are still extremely large, as you point out. Exactly. It, it, that, that gets to the next thing that you just also mentioned. Um, you introduced uh, in the chapter some of the potential moral hazards associated with CDR, which you just kind of uh, gave us a brief intro into. Can you give us a little bit more specifics uh, about uh, what hazards stand out? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that that... I think stands out to me are just all the unknowns. Um, it's it's easy to focus on the carbon accounting, uh, you know, just as the net zero concept suggests. All we have to do is balance the carbon budget, and we're and we're good. Uh, but but there's so much as as kind of uh, uh, as Pete discussed earlier as well. There's just so much that uh, a CDR transformation would entail in terms of. Uh, changes in land use, in our energy system, in how we manage uh, food and um, our industrial processes. We just have so little experience with such a massive societal transformation that's needed to scale up CDR to gigaton levels. And so if we aim for really large scale CDR, we plan for that, and then we fail, then we're hurting future generations and those, those people uh, aren't able to consent to our decisions today. Um, so uh, historically, when, when massive shifts have happened in society, lots of people tend to suffer. Um, and the only way we can really avoid that um, is, or work to avoid that, is to embrace an, an equity-based approach, um, one that focuses on redistributing wealth and access to resources and privileges. Um, and we, we, we get at this in the last section of chapter one. Um, and, you know, personally, this is, from, from a personal perspective, this is why um, I think as important as it is to be careful about CDR and how we approach it, especially as it's just getting uh, a lot more attention these days, CDR is also this immense opportunity if we, if we uh, approach it properly to reduce, reduce inequality and, and prevent future harm. Um, uh, and so if we're going to embark on a massive CDR scale-up operation, um, democracy is, is key. The only way to really balance the normal, enormous potential um, harms of climate change and the risks of, uh, of possibly not scaling up 
these infrastructure is to re really rethink how we collectively plan for and and govern that infrastructure um, and that in includes uh, challenging questions about how to move power away from polluting industries but also considering options like public ownership of infrastructure and so we've got a lot of work ahead of us Erica Tolley and Pete pointed out that CDR is multidisciplinary. Now, chapter two looks at the full range of CDR systems. What are the general types of CDR and why are so many approaches needed? Yeah, so CDR absolutely is multidisciplinary and the primer really covers a wide range of CDR approaches. Um, these approaches are often generally classified as either nature-based or engineered solutions. Those are just kind of broad categories under which we can uh, classify these, these approaches. And nature-based solutions really focus on restoring or enhancing natural systems to uptake CO2 from the atmosphere and increase carbon storage, whereas engineered solutions, in contrast, are really technology-based. And there are many different approaches described in the primer, so I definitely recommend that listeners read the primer for a really comprehensive list and descriptions, but I'll just give some examples within these broad categories. So nature-based solutions include approaches like forest management, afforestation and reforestation, and soil carbon sequestration. Engineered solutions include approaches like direct air capture and biomass-based solutions like biochar and BECS. And biochar and BEX are often classified as engineered solutions, even though they utilize biomass, so they have a nature-based component to them, but they still have a, a heavy technology component as well. And as you mentioned, there are many approaches, and that's really a good thing because each of the, these approaches has constraints that may limit its deployment potential. And these constraints can include things like early technology maturity, questions of storage durability, costs, energy demands, and land use requirements. And these challenges and limitations really suggest that we need a portfolio of CDR approaches to meet our CDR targets, and that's really what the primer sets out to describe. You know, I'd like to jo jump here for a moment to, to Noah, and, and he's worked on direct air capture, which is, I guess, arguably the most technology-focused of the CDR solutions, at least per my understanding. So, so Noah, what is direct air capture, and, and when and where is it a good solution? Um, that's a great question. So direct air capture or DAC, as you mentioned, is uh, an engineered carbon removal approach. And in its current iterations, companies use large fans to flow massive volumes of air through what are called engineered contactors. And these contactors contain a material that is meant to facilitate the contact between this inlet airstream and a given capture agent. And this capture agent will selectively remove CO2 from that inlet airstream that allows for a quote unquote, cleaner airstream to exit the contactor. So some versions of these air contactors use monoliths. So you can envision them kind of like a catalytic converter that you see in your car. So after that ca capture agent has removed enough CO2, it's regenerated and can be used to capture more CO2. And this can either take place in the contactor or downstream of the contactor, but it typically involves using either a higher temperature and or a lower pressure condition. And this regenerates the capture agent and produces a high purity stream of CO2. So it's important to note here that DAC is a process that produces a pure stream of CO2 and must be coupled to geologic storage to achieve negative emissions. Um, so kind of focusing on the next part of your question with when and where is it a good solution, um, there are many resource considerations that affect where we should place these systems, which are outlined in detail in chapter three of the primer. But two of these resource considerations are the proximity to geologic storage and the energy resource availability. So since DAC produces a pure stream of CO2, you need to put it somewhere. 
or locate it near transportation infrastructure, such as pipelines. And then DAC is also energy intensive, which means that it's important to co-locate direct air capture with low carbon energy resources. So an optimal siting for direct air capture maximizes the proximity of the DAC system to the resource required for its operation. Let, let me ask you a little bit more about that energy intensivity. Is that going to be a problem? Because it sounds like DAC could be competing for clean electricity to run the systems uh, with general electricity demand. So that's a great question. And direct air capture is energy intensive. Um, a direct air capture plant requires between about 150 and 500 megawatts of energy to power the process, depending on the energy resource used. And this is equivalent to a small to mid-sized power plant. So you can imagine direct air capture system coupled to a power plant. So it's important to say that we have to first focus on decarbonizing grid electricity production and then expand the capacity to accommodate direct air capture. But unfortunately, we've, with our current climate um, situation, we've kind of moved into a period where we can't really focus on one or the other, but have to do them both in tandem. So, so at the other end of the spectrum uh, is forest management, which Jeremy has a, a lot of insight into. Jeremy, what role can forests play? Yeah, great question, Andy. So forests and, and other vegetation more broadly achieve carbon removal through the chemical reactions of photosynthesis with the carbon ultimately stored in plant biomass. That's happening all the time in our existing ecosystems. And there's lots of good reasons to preserve and conserve forests, habitats, ecosystems, biodiversity. Um, the role of forests specifically as a carbon removal strategy is a little more complicated. Um, so in that case, we're usually talking about either enhancing the existing sink um, in a few different ways, and, and there's a variety of ways to do that. Uh, one is reforestation, and that refers to restoring forests in existing previously forested areas. Um, afforestation refers to planting forests in new locations, um, and improved forest management refers to changing harvest practices so as to potentially increase the amount of carbon storage um, in a managed forest. Um, and the basic mechanism of carbon removal here is relatively straightforward. I do want to stress there's some critical issues and, and some critical concerns. Um, so the first concern is that the carbon removal is not permanent. Um, there are many threats to forests. There's fire, there's drought, there's insects. Um, and there's also, of course, the potential um, that the forest, while preserved for some period of time, ends up getting cut down. Um, in the best case scenario, the forest is maybe, uh, the carbon is maybe stored for 100 years. Um, in comparison, some of the methods like what Noah was talking about um, uh, involving geological sequestration, uh, those can last for thousands of years. And I really want to stress this is important because the carbon dioxide emissions that we're constantly producing, um, those have effects on the atmosphere and on global warming that last for hundreds to thousands of years. So we need to have carbon removal strategies that are kind of matched to that. And that's a real challenge when it comes to systems involving forests. Um, the other really important thing to stress around forests, um, especially when we're talking about those strategies that involve changes to existing land management practices, is that we really have to think hard about a thorny problem called additionality. Um, so that the idea here is that if someone says they're not going to cut down a forest or they're gonna harvest it less frequently because you paid the money to do it, for example, um, as is done in, in forest offset, um, regimes, uh, how do we really know what they were going to do in the first place? That has to be a, a component to how we think about um, incentivizing and evaluating the efficacy of these methods. Um, and there's a lot of good evidence that, at least in the past, it, it, you know, programs like this um, haven't really worked and there have been a lot of problems. So again, forests are fantastic for all kinds of reasons. 
their mechanism for, for CDR is relatively straightforward, but there's a lot of concerns to be worried about, especially around um, permanence and around additionality, if you're considering them specifically for carbon removal. You know, d direct air capture, as Noah was talking about a few minutes ago, seems to take relatively little space. It's it's machinery, whereas forestry solutions are, are just the opposite. Uh, it takes so much land space. What challenges result from that need for, for land? Yeah, great, great question. And we, uh, we're surely going to come come back to this in the in the chapter on mapping as well. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say one thing, uh, actually, one of the first things Noah taught me about this whole space. Um, Direct air capture can take up a lot of space too, um, especially because we're often talking about uh, sort of building new energy resources alongside building our, our direct air capture resources. Um, so there is there are space requirements there as well. Um, you know, forest and actually a lot of the sort of bioenergy um, things that Erica works on, um, that can be even more expansive. Um, and in particular, you're often talking there about using land that could well be you know used or desired for lots of other competing purposes whether agriculture um, or human ha you know places for humans to live um, it's incredibly complicated and, and really all of these strategies if you imagine projecting them out to massive scale um, start to have a lot of complicated dependencies on land use that are, are really important to think through they raise issues around governance and justice and local communities um, and I, I can't stress enough how important it is to think about that now, Erica, you've looked at a solution uh, that combines carbon capture and land management, in, in this case, in, in, in agriculture. Uh, and, and it's called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. How does this BECS, which is the, the acronym, work? And in what circumstances is it a solution? Yeah, so BECS is a pathway to capturing carbon from the air and storing it in the ground while generating some useful energy products in the process. And so these energy products could be electricity, heat, hydrogen, liquid fuels. So really quite a suite of products and quite a variety of different pathways that are implied by that. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But um, in terms of the carbon capture component, one of the rather unique things about BEX is that it really combines a nature-based approach to taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, in the growth of the biomass itself with a technology approach to converting that biomass to one of those useful energy products and then creating a form of carbon for storage and removal. Um, and so, so it's a rather unique hybrid of nature-based and technology-based approaches in that way. Now, one of the interesting things about BEX and one of the reasons it can be rather confusing to think about and summarize as people think about the think about BEX is that it's really an umbrella under which many different biomass conversion pathways fall. And so these different pathways can look like combustion of biomass to produce electricity and heat, gasification to produce hydrogen and liquid fuels, pyrolysis to produce liquid fuels and or biochar, fermentation to make fuels. And so through these different processes, the, bio, the carbon in the biomass is converted to one or more of those different products I mentioned earlier, as well as some CO2 and or biochar that are then the candidates for storage and removal. So some to all of the carbon is converted to a form that's a candidate for removal. 
But as you can tell from that list of technology pathways, these are really very different with very different energy products. And so from a CDR perspective, that means that there are also really different implications of these pathways for number one, how much of the carbon in the biomass is available for storage and removal and what the life cycle emissions are for each of those processes. And so again, under that BEX umbrella, there are a lot of different considerations right there. Um, another major consideration for BEX is the biomass demand of this approach. And this is really, um, a, both a, a major concern about BECS and also a major limiting factor for BECS. So when we're, when we're thinking about, uh, when we're looking for biomass to use for BECS, there's a really important distinction to be made between biomass waste versus dedicated biomass. So we think about using biomass waste, we're thinking of using things like forest residues and agricultural residues with an eye towards things that wouldn't be used for another purpose and would maybe be faded for decomposition or um, open burning, for example. Whereas dedicated biomass would include things like crops grown intentionally for BEX, and that's really where the agriculture component comes in and the land use considerations and potential substantial land demand for BEX comes in. Um, but among those, biomass waste is considered to be a safer pathway to BEX because it doesn't require land use repurposing for biomass production, which again, can have really serious adverse life cycle implications and other negative implications. But Either way, whether we pursue waste biomass and or some rollout of dedicated biomass for BECS, we really, we, we're running into that scale potential of BECS. So, so there's a scale potential that has limitations. And really, it reminds us why we need a portfolio of CDR mm -hmm. solutions. Erica, thanks very much. Uh, let's move on to Chapter 3 and Jeremy. So, Jeremy, so far we've talked about a number of CDR solutions. And, and one thing that's really becoming clear is that each solution makes sense in certain locations. You've thought a lot about mapping CDR opportunities. Um, what, what factors do you need to take into account when determining what CDR solution may work for a given location? Yeah, so so nearly all CDR methods have a, a fairly complex dependency on, on land and location. Um, the key issues, um, kind of what those factors are, uh, vary a lot by category. So when it comes to forests and, and other biological systems, um, we, we need to think about available land. We need to think about how that land is currently used. Um, are there existing ecosystems or not? Um, was that land historically ever forested um, in the recent past or not? Um, and, and if it's never been forested, why not? Um, you know, what are the, what are the kind of ecological properties, uh, climate properties uh, of that location? Um, I will add many ecologists, um, really question the feasibility of converting uh, unforested land to new forests. Um, so it's not clear that there are many opportunities for that period. Um, and so, some recent estimates, I also want to stress of, of kind of the amount of potential sort of new forest, you know, reforestation or, or afforestation that we could do um, have been wildly overstated. Um, so it's really important to be careful about what we're assuming about available land. Um, a really important thing also with forests and, and potentially new forests is competition with agriculture, which very quickly becomes an issue. Um, so, you know, those are some of the complexities with forests. Uh, when it comes to engineered systems like direct air capture, uh, uh, really key questions involve um, energy availability um, and then locations for uh, mineralization or, or geological injection. Um, uh, I want to call out uh, Helene and Ben, um, co-authors on the chapter, did some incredible work um, to, to basically systematically map uh, low carbon sources of energy like concentrated solar power, um, photovoltaic um, and offshore wind. And then in parallel, they generated these, these beautiful maps of prospective sedimentary basins and also maps of, of uh, mafic and ultramafic rocks. Um, 
And then what they did is look at how all these different maps co-occur, which uh, can can help suggest locations that it might be useful to explore doing these these activities. Um, I'm using a lot of weasel words there um, because I really want to stress there's so many factors that need to be considered when it comes to sort of citing and, and evaluating the potential for, for CDR deployment. Um, and in this chapter, chapter three, really just scratches the surface. There's some, there's some beautiful maps. There's some really elegant analysis and insight in there. Um, but so much else needs to be considered. Local communities, regional governments, existing uses of land. Uh, it's enormously complicated. Um, and, and so many people and so many perspectives have to be part of that conversation um, and are, are critical consider. So, you know, the data, the analysis, it, it's, it's exciting and, and there's a lot to learn from thinking about this mapping um, and doing this kind of mapping exercise, but there's so much more to still consider. What, what you're saying really brings to mind the next question. I mean, there's so many uh, considerations here, so many variables. So, so the question is then, what kinds of data sets and statistical analyses are, are involved in doing this kind of mapping work? Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, this is where, I, you know, I just love this kind of stuff. Um, and this was a, a fun, messy, super complicated uh, data problem. Um, many of these data sets, uh, they come from different sources and different formats at different resolutions, um, different levels of granularity. In some cases, we're sort of extracting numbers from PDFs. Um, some are images published as part of papers in a, a wide variety of formats. Um, it was really an enormous amount of work to, to get, get all these kind of raw sources, get them into the same format, um, sort of pull them in to do kind of spatial um, analytics and, and really uh, Helene, Ben and Grace also co-author on the on the chapter working on the sort of forests and, and grasslands and soil side of things um, to just bring all that together. They're all heroes. Um, I also want to call out, this was a, a really exciting uh, place in the primer um, for our designers, um, Johnny uh, Black and Richard Roche from Ordinary Things um, to really work hands-on with the team and figure out how to best kind of visualize and display this information. Um, you know, with any problem like this, there's there's the analysis, and then there's also how do you look at it. Um, and and John Dean Richard has brought an incredible eye to the whole project, and want to give them a lot of credit. You know, uh, during our discussion of chapter two, I asked you a question about the land footprint of carbon sequestration with biological systems. You know particularly, uh, for example, with bioenergy crops. And I want to go a little bit deeper on that. That, that, that. that land footprint is massive. How should we think about those big land demands? Yeah, um, it, it's a great question. And it does, again, it gets really interesting and complicated uh, in different ways for the different categories. Um, so, you know, I, I will always stress um, engineered systems also have potentially large land requirements. It depends on how we do them. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, situations where we're talking about constructing new uh, low carbon energy sources alongside um, our, say, direct air capture facilities, that's going to result in, in a fairly large land um, requirement as well. Um, but certainly um, when we're talking about, you know, with forests, really afforestation, sort of new um, forests. And, and when we're talking in the context of, of VEX, if we're talking about sort of, as Erica pointed out earlier, um, you know, new new crops, new, new, new growth, um, yeah, the land demand it gets big quickly. Um, you know, I often think with this stuff, you you got to think at different levels of scale. Um, you know, the answer for what it would take to do a sort of fairly small scale pilot or a sort of moderate scale deployment, really different than what it would take to do, uh, you know, sort of get to a gigaton with one method. Um, and it's really, you know, when you start getting to those kind of, frankly, sort of outlandish numbers, um, you, you start to really have uh, serious questions about, you know, is this possible? You know, what does it start to compete with 
Um, what questions do we need to be asking about other uses of that land, um, issues of, of local communities, issues of local governance, um, who's deciding what we're doing um, is an incredibly complicated question. And, and absolutely, you know, we need to thinking, we need to be thinking about justice and we need to be thinking about um, environmental, um, you know, integrity and ecosystems, all of that together. Um, you know, there's no, uh, at least I'd, I'd be reluctant to say there's sort of a hard limit on what's possible for any of these things. Um, certainly at some point there will be bounds. I think that's well outside what anyone thinks is possible right now. Um, but, you know, we're, we're partly doing this work because we're trying to prepare for the future. So we need to be thinking ahead um, to what it looks like to do these things that we're maybe just now starting to consider. What does it look like to do them at a very large scale? And what are the consequences of that? We have to be really careful and really serious about that. Jeremy, thanks. Let's go on to chapter four with Noah now. Noah, so, so your work looks at life cycle analysis or, or an understanding of the net benefits of a given carbon dioxide removal solution. Uh, again, this is chapter four we're talking about. What does life cycle analysis take into account? So that's a great question. And life cycle analysis or LCA is an evaluation of kind of what goes into, what comes out of, and the potential environmental impacts of a given system throughout its life cycle. So this can provide insight into things like what resources are needed to create or maintain the system. And this includes energy resources, materials, water, land use, uh, among other types of resources. And it really aids in understanding what parts of the process have the highest potential trade-offs or environmental impacts, which are also known as the processes hotspots. So if you do this early on in the development of a process, you can really design specifically to mitigate the impact of some of these um, process hotspots. So one specific aspect of life cycle analysis that's important for evaluating whether a system actually achieves net negative emissions is carbon accounting. And this involves quantifying the carbon emissions that will occur as a result of deploying a process. And it includes to some some people's surprise of varying types of carbon emissions that need to be included for a comprehensive analysis. So I, I actually will think it's beneficial to outline some of these and provide examples so that there's um, kind of a visualization of what types of emissions you can see from some of these carbon dioxide removal systems. So the first type of emissions is scope one or called direct process emissions. And this refers to emissions that result directly from a given process. So for example, if you have uh, some kind of a chemical reaction occurring that produces CO2 that you then vent to the atmosphere, that's considered process emissions. Um, similarly, if you have a kiln that combusts natural gas where the CO2 from that combustion is also vented to the atmosphere, that constitutes direct process emissions. The second type of CO2 emissions are called scope two or indirect emissions, and these result indirectly from resources used by the process. So for example, if your process uses grid electricity that's supplied by a natural gas combined cycle per se, um, the emissions from that electricity used in that process are considered indirect emissions. So your process requires four gigajoules of electricity. Those, the emissions associated with producing those four gigajoules for your process would be considered indirect emissions. And then the final type are uh, scope three emissions or embodied emissions. And this refers to emissions that result from the production or use of any good or the provision of any service, which sounds very complicated in a sense, because it is. Um, so for example, if you have a reaction vessel that's made of steel, 
or you use concrete to lay the foundation of a building, all of those materials have associated CO2 emissions that have to be factored into the overall footprint of the process. So when you think about these different types of emissions, you can imagine that what you choose to define as your process also has a large impact on the results of a life cycle analysis. Uh, you can take Zach as an example of that. So if you focus just on direct air capture, it will change the results of a life cycle analysis as opposed to focusing on direct air capture coupled to, say, geologic storage. So to truly evaluate the impact of a proposed carbon dioxide removal approach, uh, you need to consider the potential trade-offs and impacts across the entire system lifecycle. So this includes construction of the process, everything that goes into and comes out of the process, as well as the end-of-life consideration. So it, at the end, is the process demolished? Do you recycle any of that material? Can you recycle any of that material? All of these are things to consider when performing an LCA. Um, it, well, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, you're good. Uh, include did, that, did I interrupt your <laughs> train of thought? I'm sorry. No, you're good. I was just going to say, including the complete life cycle of the system is known as a cradle-to-grave life cycle, and it's really the only way you can determine whether a system truly achieves those net negative emissions. So what you're saying is really, really important. It's not just about the process itself. Everything that goes into even creating the equipment, whatever it may be for that process, really has to be taken into account. So overall, on net, has this been carbon neutral, positive, negative, whatever it may be. That, that sounds like it's really important takeaway here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a related question, is is the focus of uh, LCA uh, life cycle analysis therefore limited to carbon dioxide emissions, or can you quantify other aspects uh, as well? Oh, absolutely. You should definitely quantify other aspects, and life cycle analyses should take into consideration like a myriad of different different potential impact areas, and they, they typically do. There's a lot of common impact areas that are included in these types of analyses. Um, for example, um, particulate matter, so all of the solid or liquid particles that are suspended in air, uh, many of which are actually hazardous uh, to people. You can quantify the particulate matter emissions from a given process depending on the size of the matter that's evolved from the process. Um, similarly, there's impacts like eutrophication, which is an excess richness of nutrients, typically nitrogen or phosphorus in a body of water. And these typically occur from runoff nitrogen, specifically from agricultural lands, and then phosphorus from common household detergents. And what this does is it causes a dense growth of plant life that depletes an area of oxygen and can cause death to animals. So you can quantify the expected eutrophication from a process. Um, similarly, there's aspects like ecotoxicity or the, how toxic um, compounds are to the environment, as well as human toxicity, which is the same as ecotoxicity but for humans. And these potential impact areas uh, can help us understand how the process impacts its environment, as well as what the trade-offs of the process are. So if one process has higher CO2 emissions but lower human toxicity, and another process has um, higher human toxicity but lower CO2 emissions, you have to consider all of those facets of impacts when deciding what you're going to, which system you're going to pursue. Um, all of that being said, there are some areas that LCA does not do well in addressing, and this includes aspects such as societal or sociological impacts of a given process. This has uh, kind of given rise to a new field of LCA called social life cycle analysis, 
which really attempts to quantify the social impact of product systems throughout their life cycle. And this includes things like impacts on stakeholders, like workers or local communities, in a range of different impact categories, including human rights and cultural heritage, among others. Um, however, quantifying qualitative social impacts can pose a challenge to these types of life cycle analyses. The range of factors that you have to take into consideration and the range of, of data inputs that would go into any modeling seem absolutely astounding, really, really large. So, so what challenges are there to getting the data to, to build the impact models? Many challenges. Um, the, the first and perhaps one of the most important challenges is the data availability and accuracy. So as you mentioned, to build these LCA models, you need tons of data and you need a very good understanding of the process that you're evaluating, which does require extensive amounts of data sometimes associated with individual components of these processes. So this builds the basic foundation for the life cycle analysis. So if there are inaccuracies in the data used to perform the LCA, it kind of jeopardizes that foundation. So one way that researchers would go about combating this is by coupling the life cycle analysis to an uncertainty analysis, which helps quantify the, the deviations in the data or account for any uncertainties that you see in data availability or accuracy over the literature. Um, data availability is a significant issue for developing technologies, which actually includes a lot of these carbon dioxide removal approaches. So since many of these systems have yet to be developed, there's increased uncertainty surrounding the data used to create these life cycle analyses, or you have to use similar process units as a baseline in determining what those potential impacts might look like. Okay, let's move on to chapter five, uh, and Pete's coming back to talk about that one. Uh, so, Pete, as mentioned earlier, uh, carbon dioxide doesn't necessarily need to be buried underground uh, to be on, you know, to take us on the path to, to net zero emissions. Uh, carbon dioxide can also be used in a variety of products, which is known as carbon utilization. And, and my understanding is that this might actually improve the economics of CDR. But can you give us an introduction into carbon utilization uh, again, which is the focus of Chapter Five? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, carbon utilization, in, in, a, in the simplest sense, is converting CO2 to value. Uh, so CO2 is is traditionally thought of as a waste product, right? There's, there's usually no economic value uh, to a waste product. And we are in the precipice of collecting a whole lot of it. And so you kind of think of the problem, we've, 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 we've thought of capturing or removing a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide, what to do with it. Uh, well, carbon's also a tremendous building block. If you were to look around your room right now, or your home, you know, just about everything you see from the clothes on your back to the roof over your head, you know, is built from carbon. We're talking plastics, chemicals, fuels, wood products, concrete, the soles of your shoes, all these things can be made from carbon. So we're really staring down, I think, a tremendous opportunity uh, to generate revenue and wealth. And again, you know, wh why would we want to do that? Well, again, we can improve the economics of of carbon dioxide removal. Uh, it's, it's an expensive prospect. Um, and, you know, traditionally feedstocks aren't free. So people will pay you for this carbon dioxide if you can find the right partnerships. And you kind of think about this as sort of an oppor a mining opportunity, right? We're taking carbon dioxide and, and turning it into a marketable commodity. There are other benefits here. You know, the majority of carbon in our in our uh, commodities today come from fossil. So the, I think the more carbon dioxide we can use in place, the quicker we can transition away from fossil. And as mentioned earlier, 
you know, there's, you know, opportunities for, for local storage and long lived products. So this would be utilized primarily as a kind of a synthetic fossil fuel. Is that what we're talking about? That's one option, right? There's, there's, uh, uh, a host really really too many to talk through when you think about taking carbon as a building block you know hydrocarbons fuels are certainly one opportunity and so the the opportunity to kind of displace fossil as a fuel is one but i think there's a lot of fossil ends up in other products that we're we're not quite as aware of when we talk about trying to kind of defossilize and shift away you know Part of that is finding replacements for those feedstocks, and carbon dioxide can be one. So, uh, as you also point out in the chapter, uh, there's debate as to whether CO2 should, in fact, be utilized at all. Uh, what are some of the concerns uh, around uh, carbon dioxide utilization? Right. Well, we have to be careful, right? Just because you can use carbon dioxide, for example, in a, in a, in a process to replace a conventional or incumbent route, you know, uh, you better be real certain that you're not generating more carbon dioxide in the process, right? More CO2 is actually emitted to the atmosphere than had you done nothing at all, right? And that's where I think the life cycle analysis comes in. That's a lot of what Noah talked about in chapter four, why that's so important to use that to identify those processes that lead to net reductions or net removal. And I hope by, by this point in the podcast, you know, the listeners understand that those terms aren't at all interchangeable. I think there's also great concern, as you know, totally kind of pointed to it in, in, in chapter one, you know, over some of the prominent players in utilization, namely the oil and gas industry, right, who have historically catered to their bottom line, right? So the motivation there may be unclear and people have the right to be skeptical. Uh, but if we take a step back from those concerns, there's been opposition to utilization for, for quite some time in, in a very general sense. There's also opposition as it pertains specifically to CDR. I think the CDR viewpoint's a little bit more straightforward, right? Um, it can change the outcome, right? If, we, if the name of the game is to remove carbon, right? And, and, and uh, permanently from the atmosphere or over relative time scales, right? Utilization as the back end of that process now, instead of storage or in lieu of storage can completely change that, the course of that. It's almost like vacuuming a carpet, but you don't have a bag on that vacuum. Well, you're just really pushing things around the carpet. You're not cleaning up, right? Um, take the first direct air capture plant, uh, Climeworks, right? Um, so you're removing carbon dioxide you from the atmosphere. You pass that your pipeline to an adjacent greenhouse. You boost crop yields, and then you vent that carbon dioxide. You know, where, where are you venting? You're venting back to the atmosphere. And so this is cyclical. And so you can stand back, and the opponents will say, how much CO2 did you actually remove in that process, right? Uh, the supporters will say that that director capture, capture plant changed the world, right? And it really launched a movement here that, that I think really gave birth to a lot of the things we're talking about today um, and a lot of energy to it. But from a more general sense, utilization has been viewed, and this goes back to CCS, right, as a costly distraction uh, to permanent storage, right? The argument is, you know, traditionally, why not put it underground? put it underground, let it be, remove it permanently and securely for a long period of time. And it's extremely hard to argue with that argument in a vacuum, but I find the logic just a little bit flawed. First, I think it assumes that the CO2 was already captured, 
It assumes that the capturing or removing technology was already in place and would have existed, and this is important, in the absence of utilization partner. So I think that argument ignores uh, often challenging economics of capture and removal and really the power of utilization and one of the benefits to help kind of subsidize those costs. You uh, know, I want, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, it's, it, it, just an, an additional point, I think, and this, this is also important, I think, more on our radar now. Uh, I think it ignores some of, some of the current challenges in saline storage. I think uh, we, we, we understand storage. We know it's, it's, it's the ultimate end goal. But this isn't just about money. You know, this is about permitting. This is about public acceptance, uh, some geopolitical uh, barriers. So I think storage is, is a little bit more complicated than it should be at this point uh, in our effort and in the urgency that we have at hand. And uh, I, I don't think we have the time to wait. And I think one of the fears cast by opposition, opposition groups is that we'll open some type of utilization rabbit hole leading us into kind of technical lock-in. They'll actually make it harder to transition to storage when it's ready and when that infrastructure is in place. Uh, and, and kind of in the end, that could end up being more harmful and counterproductive to our, our goals, right, than any of these technical and cost learning that we'd unlock through CO2 uh, utilization as a means to kind of help deploy some of these technologies in the, in the interim. Well, it's kind of analogous to the debate we're seeing right now about natural gas infrastructure, right? Do you build the pipelines and then lock in the need to use those pipelines and then obviously the use of gas? Uh, gas going forward, you're talking about the same kind of thing with this potential utilization path. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's that's uh, a, a good analogy there. I think, you know, uh, T typically lock in it, it you know becomes you, you kind of reach a point or a tipping point where it becomes kind of uh economically prohibitive to to, to abandon those pathways uh, but i think there there are mechanisms that we can look into uh, uh to 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 avoid that and i think there are enough people that are actually kind of thinking through these concerns uh, uh to, to to develop some kind of strategic pathways around them could policy uh, make carbon utilization more relevant? Are there any policy solutions to grow to grow this? I think it, it certainly can. Uh, uh, you know, you can. There's certainly economic incentives uh, uh, for for utilization. We can see those today. Our, our D and D support. Um, uh, we can get all the way to procurement um, and and mandates uh, in terms of you know, uh, supporting and, and, and shifting uh, kind of market spaces towards some of these low, lower carbon commodities, which will obviously be yielded, uh, hopefully. I think we talked through those life cycle issues that will be uh, kind of a product of this. Uh, it, it is, I think, comes back in not that, that there's mechanisms that, that can be helpful. The, the, the real question is, should we do that? Um, and, and really, there's, I, I would say there's two schools of thought on that. And there's really two camps, and that may be over, oversimplifying, but really there's those that believe that utilization is an essential part of supporting early tech, promoting scaling efforts, driving down costs, establishing markets and infrastructure. And, and it will really set us in a position to succeed uh, on our path to achieve those very lofty kind of mid-century goals that, 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 that totally had outlined. And then there are those who feel that utilization could perhaps derail those efforts and, and hinder our, our pace uh, relative to kind of a counterfactual where we were not to pursue those avenues. I tend to fall more in the first camp 
Um, and I do think policy has a role to play in, in ensuring that that second reality is not realized. Uh, and perhaps that, you know, I think there's a lot of conversations today surrounding that. Perhaps that, you know, means amending incentives so that, you know, there's there's a, a progressive gap between saline storage and, and, and use over time or standardizing emission accounting schemes to thwart, you know, private interest groups and corporate greenwashing. All right. But I think the will is there. And I think we're, we're all watching. Um, and, and really back to kind of what the primer is all about, the more we educate the public on these and the more we cast light on these issues, I think the less likely we'll head down a path of no return. Erica, Tolly, Jeremy, Noah, and Pete, thanks for talking. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with everyone. Thanks, thanks for so having much, us, Andy. Andy. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, thank you, Andy. It was great to be here. For a deeper dive into carbon dioxide removal, visit the Carbon Dioxide Primer website at cdrprimer.org. And for news and insights into a wealth of energy and environmental policy issues, visit the Climate Center website. There you can even sign up to get our monthly email newsletter with updates on center research, publications, events, and even this podcast. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 